Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1, through chapter 2, verse 4a. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and treat, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, 
he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were, com were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, fall uh, is officially upon us, and, and I know this not just because my kids have started school and the Vikings kick off in an hour, uh, and I also know this not just because it's pumpkin spice everything everywhere, which I'm down for, and, and I know this not just because, as Dave can attest to this past week, I turned on my space heater for the first time since May. Don't hate. And, uh, no, I, I know this because we officially wrapped up our summer sermon series last weekend on, on the book of Proverbs, and so today uh, we begin our annual journey through the narrative lectionary. And just as a reminder, or, or perhaps an introduction, the, the narrative lectionary is just this four-year cycle of Bible readings that's set up for use in corporate worship. And, and it walks us through the story of Scripture, hitting different key points in the narrative over the course of each year. And, and the major emphasis each year, as it should be, is on one of the Gospels, zooming in on the life and teachings of Jesus. And so after Christmas, we'll dive into the Gospel of John. But today, as we start our time in this year's selection of readings, we literally go back to the very beginning, the start of Genesis, the first chapter. And, and there are a few chapters in Scripture that I think are more, more well-known than this one, and there are perhaps few chapters in Scripture more controversial than this one. I mean, one of the most contested cultural debates for over a century has centered around the origins of life and the universe and, and whether Scripture's account of how creation came to be is true or, or modern science's understanding of how things came to be is true. And if you're looking for me to wade into that debate this morning, you're going to be sorely disappointed because, uh, and my, my sincere apologies to Ken Ham on this one, but I don't think Genesis 1 is at all concerned with the scientific examination of how everything came to be. I, I think that's an attempt for us to ask questions of the text that it just was never intending to answer. And so if that's the case, if, if it's a fool's errand to try to understand Genesis 1 in modern scientific terms, then, then what is Genesis 1 getting at? What is the truth that it is communicating to us? And I want to just first say that there are differing perspectives on that, and the perspective that I'll share with you this morning is merely one such perspective. So please don't take it as the absolute and definitive understanding. Rather, just understand that this is a perspective that I personally find to be both faithful to what the text is saying 
and compelling for what it reveals. But before I get into that, let me just note that while Genesis 1 perhaps isn't meant to be read as a scientific account for how everything came to be, nonetheless, it definitely assumes that everything in creation finds its origin in the one true God. God is behind all that we see. That's beyond dispute. Now then, though, how, how might we understand what Genesis 1 communicates regarding these seven days of creation? And to answer that, I just have to let you know that I'm indebted to Old Testament scholar John Walton uh, of Wheaton College and his seminal book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And the main claim that Walton uh, makes is that Genesis 1 isn't concerned with material origins, but rather with functional origins. Not material origins, but functional origins. That Genesis 1 isn't telling us the scientific specifics of how matter came to exist, but rather how God brought order and purpose to the material creation. And a little background here might help. Uh, Thousands of years ago, Israel understood existence and what it means to exist very differently than we do today. Their ontology was different. Now let me define that word ontology because it's really just fancy nerd speak for what it means for something to exist. Ontology, what it means for something to exist. And, and I know that if I asked any of us in the room what it means for something to exist, I'd, I'd probably get some blank stares or maybe smirks be, because the answer seems obvious. For example, if I were to say that this music stand exists, I, I would just back up that claim by pointing to the fact that we can all see it, we can touch it, I can set papers on it so we can detect it with our senses, we could analyze what materials it's made from, These physical qualities make this stand real, and because of it, we consider this stand to exist. That's what we would call a material ontology. We usually think of something's existence in terms of its material properties. But we also know that there are other ways we talk about something as existing. For example, think about what we mean when we say that a company exists. Clearly, that's not the same kind of existing as this music stand's existence. It leads to questions like, does the company exist when it first has filed the appropriate articles of incorporation? Is that when its existence begins? Or or does it not exist until it has a building or a website? I I mean, in some answers, the answer to those questions would probably be yes. Uh, But many would probably prefer to speak of the company as existing once it's actually doing business. I mean, think of like a restaurant as an example. I mean, a restaurant is required to display a current permit from the city of Department of Health. And without that permit, the restaurant, in, in a lot of ways, could be said not to exist because it can't do business without it. And what is a restaurant if it's not providing food for people? And so in this case, that business's existence is defined in functional terms. That's a functional ontology. And I share all of that because it's important for our understanding of Genesis 1. Most of us, I'd be willing to wager, often read Genesis 1 as focusing on material origins of everything that exists. We're we're bringing material ontology to Genesis. And, And I'd be willing to bet that even as I suggest that maybe that's not the only way or the best way to read Genesis 1, that, that many of us are thinking, well, what else could it be? But again, think of the example of the company and its existence being tied to its function. Could it be possible to see the creation account of Genesis 1 primarily in those terms instead? Because 
What Walton and, and other scholars propose is that people in the ancient world, when Scripture was written down, believed that something existed not primarily because of its material properties, but by virtue of it having a function in an ordered system. And not an ordered system in, in scientific terms, but in human terms, in relation to society and how we experience life. For example, in that sort of understanding, the sun's existence isn't primarily based on its material properties as a burning ball of gas. Rather, it exists because of the way it functions in human life as something that provides structure to our days and provides light and life and heat. And so in a functional ontology, creating something or bringing something into existence would be all about giving it a function or a role in an ordered system. It's more about that than giving it material properties. So if you're following with me, that means that something could be manufactured physically but still not exist if it hasn't yet become functional. I want to pause here for a moment because I know you didn't show up this morning for a lesson in philosophy. Uh, and and I, I saw a few eyes glaze over just a little bit when I started talking about ontology. And again, ontology, just what it means for something to exist. And, and I get that. I, I do. But this is important because it lays the groundwork for where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So, so let me just give one more example that I think might help us grasp these two different ways of understanding what it means for something to exist. Again, the difference between material existence and functional existence. So think about if we're creating a computer. Uh, and, and you might know that there are many stages in that process. I know this because I witnessed my son Jonah do it this past summer with a Raspberry Pi computer that he created. Now, at the most basic level, the electronics have to be manufactured, right? Like the keyboard, the monitor, the, the motherboard, all those peripherals designed and so on. That's the basic manufacturing process, which we might call the material phase of the computer's creation. And so after someone's assembled all of those manufactured parts, we might say that the computer exists. But then there'd be other aspects that we'd have to consider. For example, the operating system and other software to run on the computer's hardware have to be written. And even once they've been written, if they haven't been installed on the computer, then their existence is meaningless and the computer can't function. And so there's a separate process of installing the operating system that makes the computer theoretically functional. But then what if there's no power source, right? I mean, that's another obstacle to the computer's existence. Once we have it plugged into a power source, then we might claim that its existence is complete. But then what if no one sits at the keyboard or, or knows how to turn it on or even desires to use it? In that case, it remains non-functional, and for all intents and purposes, it, it's almost as if it didn't exist. And so you can see how different observers might be tempted to look at that and attribute existence of the computer at different points along the way. And, and none of those would necessarily be wrong. But what I want us to see is that the first audience of Genesis 1, I think, would have been likely to read its accounts functionally, that that's when existence really means something, when it has function, when it has purpose. In the ancient world, what was most crucial to their understanding of existence was the way the parts of the cosmos functioned, not their material status. In, in a sense, that was just assumed. And so the actual point when something truly existed was when that had been given its function, its purpose in an ordered system. Okay, so, foundation. Now, let's turn to Genesis 1 and see what pops out at us when we try reading it 
functionally, as functional creation rather than, than material creation. And again, as I say this, please remember, I'm not saying that God didn't create things in a material sense. I, I want to be on the record as saying I 100% believe that God created all that exists. And scripture would argue that as well. I'm just saying that how God materially created everything is not perhaps the main concern of Genesis 1. So let's dig in. Uh, After starting by telling us that God created everything, the heavens and the earth, we're given the statement that the earth was formless and void. Now, now if the seven days of Genesis 1 were all about material creation, we wouldn't expect to already be given that detail. We'd expect it to begin with nothing, no material. Yet this verse is describing an earth that has no function, no purpose. It's formless and void. It's unproductive. And and when we're given that kind of setup, perhaps we should expect that the seven days of creation that follow will primarily be about God bringing purpose and order to creation. So hang with me here. And if we reach the end and you don't find this way of reading Genesis 1 satisfying, that's cool. But let's keep going. So if the earth had no function, no purpose, what kind of purpose might God have had in mind for it? It's, it's worth that mentioning. In, in the ancient world, most cultures believed that everything functioned to meet the needs of the gods. That, that the gods created everything to work for their benefit under their authority. And to be honest, the gods were quite needy and, and more than a bit capricious. But in the Old Testament, in Scripture, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not needy in the least. Yahweh is revealed to have no needs per se. And so the functions that God creates in Genesis 1 focused instead around meeting the needs of people and of living creatures. We'll see this as we move through the rest of the text that that while humans don't enter the picture until day six of creation, the functionality that God establishes is with their needs and their situation in mind. So day one, Now, day one, I think, also provides some compelling evidence for this functional way of reading Genesis 1. On this day, God says, let there be light. But then when God creates light, what does God call the light? I'll give you a hint. It's not light. Anybody remember? Day. Yes. God calls the light day. Why doesn't God simply call the light light? Because perhaps what we're talking about here more is function. After all, what is day but a period of light, and night but a period of darkness? And so we could say that God is calling the period of light day and the period of darkness night. And, and this we can see in verse 4, it says God separated the light from the darkness. Now, if we're thinking of this in material terms, it almost makes no sense. I mean, light and darkness cannot logically be separated because by definition they can't exist together in any meaningful way. And so again here, the solution should be obvious. God is separating a period of light from a period of darkness, creating this cycle of day and night. And so what's God really creating here on day one? Time. Time. God is creating time. This is very much a creative act. But but to beat a dead horse, it's creative in a functional sense, not a material sense. And this will help us later when we get to day four and God creates the sun. I mean, again, sometimes that's a conundrum to understand why God would create light first and then the sun a few days later. Unless, of course, God's starting here with the creation of time, which big picture is far more important than the creation of the sun. Day two. Uh, Day two has been a bit problematic if we're, again, trying to read it scientifically. What does God do here? I mean, it talks about the vault. I mean, is God creating 
some physical dome in the sky to hold back water, a barrier that you know, today we, we scientifically know doesn't exist in any physical material sense. The good news is we don't need to do mental gymnastics, again, to get around this because, again, the, the functional reading of Genesis reveals something very different about what happens on day two. Yes, ancient readers might have believed that there was some kind of vault holding back the waters, but what they would have primarily heard in this account of day two is that God was creating a protective space in which we can live. And perhaps more importantly, God's creating the function by which weather would be controlled, precipitation control, because order in our world for, for everything living, but especially for us as people, depends on the right amount of precipitation, right? Too little and we starve, too much and we're overwhelmed. And so on the second day, God establishes the functions that serve as the basis for weather. Then day three, God separates. God separates the land from the water and calls the land to produce vegetation. Now, again, sometimes people get stuck when they get here because they ask, why would this be included in a creation account if God's technically not making anything new on this day? God's really just separating. He's separating land from water and then giving this already existing land the function of producing vegetation. But again, this is only a problem if we're thinking material origins. Really, day three is picking up where days one and two left off, again, with God separating things or differentiating them and giving them purpose. And this is, again, critical creation work from a functional perspective. In this instance, God is creating the proper conditions for the production of food. And so to recap, day one, God creates the basis for time. Day two, the basis for weather. Day three, the basis for food. And these three functions, time, weather, and food, are foundational for life as we know it. If we want to identify God's greatest work here, it's not the fact that he brought the materials of creation together. It's in the fact that he brought them together in such a way that they work. They work. And more could be said here, but for time's sake, let's turn to days four through six. And and those days have a clear parallel with days one through three. But here, God isn't setting up functions so much as God is installing functionaries. In, In other words, created things that will carry out their functions within the realms that God has defined those first three days. So on day four, God creates the lights of the sky to separate night and day. And and don't miss that it says that they're to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Those are functions that are really only pertinent to us as human beings. We're the ones who care about sacred seasons and who mark our calendars by days and years. Again, this is a strong hint that God is creating these functions with us in mind. Then on day five, the the primary function that God gives to the creatures that now inhabit the spaces of the sea and the sky is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill those spaces with life. And just a quick note here. uh, In the ancient world, the seas were viewed as a very dangerous place, filled with agents of chaos, enemies that worked against humanity and against order. But here it's clear that every creature of the sea is under God's complete control and has been created for God's good purpose. Okay, then day six. And before we get to the creation of humanity, here again, like in day five, functionaries are given a space to inhabit, a space to live, a space where they will carry out their functions. And again, that is primarily to reproduce and fill the earth with life. God is 
an, the author of life. God is all about life, and he desires to see this world teeming with it and the possibility of future life. And when we get to humans, we see something both similar and something unique. Yes, humans are similarly given the blessing to reproduce and fill the earth as with the creatures of the land, sea, and sky. But here, unlike everything else, humans are given a unique function in relation to God. Verses 26 and 27 say that humans were created in God's image. In God's image. And this is perhaps the most important part of the Genesis 1 account, at least practically speaking, for the way that we understand ourselves and our function in God's creation. We've been created to uniquely bear the image of God. And for this reason, the rest of creation functions in relationship to us, to humankind, and humankind serves the rest of creation as God's representatives. I mean, among the many different things that bearing God's image might signify, perhaps the main one is that people have been given the role or the function of representing the will and the work of God into this world. I mentioned earlier that, that elsewhere in the ancient world, people were viewed as having been created to serve the gods by meeting their needs. In other words, their role was to bring creation to the gods, to the divine, the focus being, you know, inside from creation out to the gods. But in Genesis, we see the opposite. The people represent God to creation, the focus moving from the divine realm through people to the world around them. This is a revolutionary revelation. And all of this brings us to day seven, the conclusion of the creation account. And if you've hung, me, hung with me this whole time, kudos. Uh, we've worked through it a lot, but I, I think the payoff here is worth it. What happens on day seven? God rests, right? That's it. God rests. Now, why does God rest? Is it just because he's exhausted from, from all of the work that he did in the first six days? I mean, as a kid, that's what I always thought, that, that even God gets worn out from a hard day's work. Um, but we know that's not true. The infinite creator of the universe is inexhaustible. So why did God rest? Uh, some have argued, and I think this is part of it, is to create an example for us as humans, to teach us the, the value and the pattern of Sabbath, of resting, of recognizing that we don't always need to work and we don't always need to be in control. Certainly, I think that's an aspect of what's happening here. But I think that's secondary. I, I think original readers of this account would have immediately known what was really going on here. And they would have seen this as a temple text, plain and simple. And, and when I say a temple text, in that understanding, you need to know that day seven actually becomes the most important of the seven days of creation. Now, in a material way of looking at, at Genesis 1, in many ways what, what happens on the seventh day doesn't have a whole lot of purpose, right? But in a functional understanding, it becomes the climax. Without it, nothing we've read to this point makes any sense or has any real meaning. Because Israel, in that day, understood God's presence rests in his temple. That's what the temple was built for. We might even say that what a temple is, is a place for divine rest. And so if we think of it that way, God resting is not shorthand for God catching his breath. Instead, after having created everything, 
After designing, in essence, a cosmic temple, giving it purpose within his perfect design, God's presence is finally resting in this cosmic temple. And the point of the temple wasn't first and foremost worship in the way that our our churches are first and foremost about coming to worship God today. I mean, that, that was part of it. But primarily, the temple was there as a place where God resides, a sacred space. It was his home, but, but more importantly, it was his headquarters, or, or as N.T. Wright is wont to say, his heavenly control room. And so when God rested in his cosmic temple, it meant that God was taking command, that God was now seated on his throne to assume his rightful place ruling over creation. And sometimes people ask, well, then what did God do on the eighth day? And and in this view, on the eighth day and in every day since then, God has been in the control room from where he runs this beautiful cosmos that he's set up. That's the ongoing work of creation. And again, if we think of Genesis 1 as being all about material creation of everything we see, then creation becomes something in the past that's now over and done with. God made objects, now they exist, we move on. But... If we view Genesis 1 as the account of functional origins, we see how God's creative work continues on to this day. I said earlier that that all of the functions in day 1 through 6 center on meeting the needs of humanity. But day 7, which focuses on this cosmic temple that God has now finished creating and ordered, day 7 centers on God, which is a powerful reminder that God's Presence is the defining element of creation and all that exists. And we have been placed in this temple as God's representatives to the rest of creation. (sighs) Okay, we made it. Now, again, you might remain unconvinced, and that's fine by me. It really is. But uh, even so, maybe you discovered some new beauty, some deep truth contained in Genesis 1 that you've never seen before. I hope so. And, And what truths... Do I pray that we take from this first? I pray that we see the amazing purpose and meaning which God has imbued in creation and how God lovingly did it with us in mind. That far more than just saying that God made everything, Genesis wants us to see that God made everything work. He gave it all purpose. I also pray that we would see the creative involvement of God in our world, not as finished, but as ongoing. I pray that we would see our world as sacred space, God's cosmic temple, meaning that God is here and working in all of this. All of it is his. I pray that we would take seriously the charge that we've been given to caretake this creation that was lovingly created with us in mind, that we as divine image bearers would mediate God's loving kindness into this world. There's no greater task than that. And brothers and sisters, as we understand these truths, I pray that we might say in harmony with our God that it is very good. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are with us uh, in the beauty uh, of this world that you have created for us, with us in mind, this this world that you have entrusted to our care as your representatives, your image bearers. God, we thank you for the purpose, uh, your intent behind all of creation. 
God, we, we, we worship you for it, and we pray that we would uh, forever find our place within that, surrender to your will and your purposes, um, representing your will into this world. And Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.